Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Let's start off with a date, May 28th. That was a very special day for you, right? Um, I feel like a lot of people would have been content to just release an orchestral album that day, of course, reprise, but um, you also released a film. <laughs> yeah, could you tell us a bit about how special that day was? Did you celebrate with friends or were you able to do anything nice on that huge day for you? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I did go out to dinner with a few friends who had also worked on the movie and I, yeah, you would think, I mean, rationally, logically that, you know, releasing a big orchestral album, releasing a movie would be a day of like joyful celebration. But to me, I was just, you know, I, I don't know. I think, uh, of course I was happy to be releasing both things, but, I don't know. I just kept working on new things. Um, it's almost a compulsion. I feel like I should be dealing with that in therapy, like <laughs> the compulsion to sort of seven days a week, just be working constantly. Like friends have accused me of being a workaholic, mm. but I don't know. Maybe that's the case, but I think it's more that the enthusiasm I have for work is just more than the enthusiasm I have for almost anything else. Yeah. Um, so, to be honest, on May 28th, I just kept working on a whole bunch of other things. No, I mean, I absolutely adored the film, and particularly the manner in which you... I love this juxtaposition of um, you're telling your story of how you became successful and how you became interested in music, etc., etc., but it's against this backdrop of being reminded that we're kind of insignificant in the universe <laughs> versus nature. I just thought that was amazing. Um, and it obviously gives us such a refreshing take on the whole music biopic slash documentary thing how did that was that an idea that came to you of telling the story in that manner well uh, I mean that is sort of just one of my ongoing obsessions and I you know it's been one of my obsessions for a very long time probably um, from being in university I don't know if it was because I was a philosophy major and I had a, I was a, a photo minor and I also studied relig did religious studies. And I'm wondering if it's, and I don't want to, I'm trying to not sound too weird or esoteric, but <laughs> the intersection of those three things, you know, because I mean, obviously philosophy for thousands of years has been consumed with this question of like, in the human form, what objective knowledge are we capable of having? What possible meaning do our lives have? You know, do our lives have any significance? Um, and then religion, you know, there's lots of really nice aspects of religion, you know, humility, service, charity. But more often than not, religion is just a structure that people employ to, you know, to create sort of like facile answers to complicated questions, you know, like looking at a 15 billion year old universe and not understanding if we have any significance. I, and I'm guilty of this as well, like using something like religion or other human institutions to sort of say like, well, of course there's significance because we all agree that there's significance, which that, you know, collective agreeing can provide comfort, but it doesn't mean that it's right. And then mm. lastly, and I'll wrap up my little <laughs> probably pointless esoteric 
spiel here is photography. What fascinated me when I was working, when I was working in dark rooms in university was how you could see very clearly that a photograph was nothing but a collection of pixels. I don't think back then we called them pixels, but you know, like in, mm. in with film, it was grain and realizing that like the ontology of photography is, or um, almost everything is microscopic, you know, elements that we give meaning to. Um, you know, there's almost, and this is where I start getting, I, I, and I apologize if I'm wasting your time with this esoteric nonsense, no, no, no. but there's almost sort of a semiotic element is like the, the human compulsion to create meaning and symbolism out of, you know, minuscule quanta that really does not conform to our ideas of meaning and significance. Um, mm. So, as it pertains to the, the movie, there's that idea of, you know, we are desperately in the human form trying to create meaning, trying to create significance for ourselves. And so, we find it in so many different ways, you know, whether it's fame, whether it's success, wealth, or even degeneracy or nihilism. Like, these are all things that provide us with sort of structural answers and I think it's sometimes really fascinating to just look at the emptiness, look at the void of existence without trying to make sense of it. So thanks for letting me <laughs> ramble on about stuff that's probably interesting to me but not that interesting to anyone else. Yeah, I mean it's such an important message for someone in your position to be telling people who aren't in that position that, you know, I've had fame, success, and money, and it's actually incredibly un <laughs> unfulfilling. And um, yeah, I mean, for example, I love. There's a very mundane moment in the film where you're just buying a bottle of water and you're having this slightly strained small talk with the cashier, um, and then immediately you're playing to a sold-out festival crowd, thousands of people, and it's just this ecstatic high enough. Yeah, I imagine people think, "Oh, I'd love that life because I'd always be playing to thousands of people," but. Was the point of that moment to show, well, actually, you're going to have these really um, very uninteresting moments, of course, like everyone else does. Um, yeah, was that the kind of aim of that? And the, for, even like you standing on a mountain at one point in the film, and of course you saying you were very, very happy at one point living in an abandoned warehouse, but even though you were happy at that point, I think you were still thinking, but if I could make loads of money and play to thousands of people, then I'd be even more happy, if that makes sense to yeah, I mean, there is that assumption, I think, that we all have or that we all work under, which is that, you know, fame and wealth and, you know, public figure status will provide endless validation and happiness. Um, and I, I mean, part of the underlying ethos of the movie is sort of me, almost, I'd say, presumptuously, with a degree of hubris, almost saying, like, look, I was a former punk rocker, you know, religious studies major, philosophy major, and I even bought into it. Like, I, you know, like, if you had asked me when I was 17 what I thought about, you know, the power of fame and wealth to deliver happiness, I would have towed the punk rock, you know, philosophy major party line and said, like, oh, you know, these are shallow institutions, these are facile, you know, like... Mm -hmm. 
they just promote leading an unexamined life. But then the moment I was confronted with a degree of fame and wealth, I bought into it completely. So, mm. you know, it makes me think a little bit, and this is a kind of a weird, obscure reference. There was an SNL, Saturday Night Live skit, decades ago, where Mike Myers had a character, um, he was this East German film critic, and he was incredibly serious. And one of his favorite filmmakers was a Russian filmmaker who made dark, obscure movies. And Mike Myers, the, his, his character was so excited because he was finally going to be able to interview this dark Russian filmmaker who had just been allowed to like emigrate to the West. And this Russian filmmaker walks onto the set and he's wearing a skateboarding shirt, drinking Mountain Dew, wearing like Oakley sunglasses. And, and it made me think like, oh, the, the idea being like, no one is immune. You know, like you can wrap yourself in the darkest, most obscure philosophy, but the moment a public figure is being nice to you or the moment someone offers you money to do, you know, to sell your art, almost everybody buys into it. And I, to my great shame, I bought into it, but at the same time, I'm also really grateful for it because I went through it. I was unsuccessful at trying to kill myself. And so now hopefully I have some, I don't know, some degree of insights around that, you know, that institution, that, that, that collectively held belief that we all have that somehow fame and public figure success are going to fix everything when Look! Look at the evidence. It's just not true. Yeah. So, just in case a minority of people watching the film misinterpret this as being sort of very nihilistic and um, def self-defeating, what do you say is the, the actual point of pursuing music? Is it is it just to focus on the the love of the creativity and sharing the music and trying to not get lost in the whole glitz and glamour side of it? Is that? Yeah. I mean, it's. I mean. For me personally, what attracted me to music in the beginning was simply the love of music. You know, listening to music, uh, going to concerts, playing my own music, writing songs. Like when I was a teenager, that's what attracted me. But then, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, I found myself, you know, still loving music, but also really loving the fame that it delivered. But then, the more I pursued the fame, the less happy I was, the more self-destructive I was. And then after I got sober, it almost delivered me back to that original, naive, simple joy that I had around music for the sake of music. Um, mm. It makes me think a little bit of, I did this terrible panel once for a talent agency in Beverly Hills and I still don't know how I got roped into being a part of this but it was something awful like you know the monetization of digital brands in the 21st century something repulsive and so I sat on this panel with 10 other people and I said nothing because I was so depressed that I was there mm. and at the very end the moderator realized I hadn't said anything and asked me my thoughts on this and I simply said to them like that nothing I have ever bought has brought me the profound joy and emotional release that I get from listening to Heroes by David Bowie. Mm -hmm. And Heroes doesn't cost, you know, listening to music, really practically speaking, doesn't cost anything if you don't want it to. And it kind of, I realize in saying that, it sort of, it shut up the room, but not 
not like they were having an insight, but more like they were super annoyed that I dared challenge <laughs> their assumption that monetization of digital brands was the key to happiness. No, of course. Um, and with that in mind, another big takeaway I had from the film was we see you go from being miserable and very addicted to alcohol, etc., etc., to suddenly you're giving yourself to a bigger cause than yourself. And I just thought with that in mind, I'd love to know what your thoughts are in the context of the context we find ourselves in, um, where you feel like we're at with veganism and um, animal rights. Because obviously we've just seen the world completely brought to a standstill by a zoonotic disease. So I'd love to hear how you, where you feel like we're at, if we've progressed or if, if we're in a bad place, you think? Well, I, my feelings are, I'd say, like <laughs> empirically paradoxical. And what I mean is, on one hand... There's evidence to support the idea that we are, as you're saying, making a lot of progress, especially mm. in the UK. Like more and more people in the UK are aware of, you know, the issues around animal agriculture and deforestation and climate change and zoonotic disease and antibiotic resistance. But one trillion animals are still killed by and for humans every year. Um, and so on one hand... I'm encouraged by the progress, but I'm so overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem. Um, and also, the I don't know if the right word is despair or dismay at humanity's unwillingness to change when confronted with new information. You know, like, if humanity were rational, we would all stop using animals for food tomorrow. Because it doesn't just destroy animals, as you mentioned, it causes zoonotic disease, it causes climate change, it causes cancer, diabetes, heart disease, antibiotic resistance, deforestation, ocean acidification, like every aspect of animal agriculture causes destruction for us, you know, for humans, like it's the most self-destructive thing we're doing and we keep doing it and we know better and it's just like, you know, I think maybe you, I, a lot of people, like we grow up with this idea that when people are confronted with evidence, they will ultimately be rational and make rational choices. You know, like when people are confronted with evidence that slavery is cruel and horrifying, we will abolish slavery. When people are confronted with evidence that same-sex couples should be afforded the same rights as heterosexual couples, we change the laws. I don't know why we're so entrenched in our commitment to animal agriculture when it's destroying us and destroying the world and destroying tons of other species and causing extinction. So it's, it, it, it really is hard to wrap my head around humanity's unwillingness to give up horrible behavioral patterns. No, absolutely. Um, I just obviously want to make sure we talk about your album before we run out of time. So I'd love to ask, how is it working with the Budapest Art Orchestra on reprise? And what I find so fascinating about this album, I hope you don't mind me saying, I think you're probably, you really are one of the most famous electronic artists ever. Sorry to kind of pigeonhole you there, but how, yeah, how is that doing this much more acoustic orchestral album? That must have been a, presented a challenge, but it must be incredible at the same time. Well, sort of... Um, a little bit self-involvedly, the irony 
around being an electronic musician is that my background is actually in music theory and acoustic music and mm. then punk rock. So long before I discovered electronic music, I was studying music theory and being trained to be a classical guitarist. And then I ditched that when I was 14 or 15 and started playing Clash and Sex Pistols covers in a suburban punk rock band in Connecticut. So when I started making electronic music and I was seen as a DJ or an electronic musician, I was very bemused because my background was actually so different from that. You know, keep in mind, I love electronic music and I love, obviously I've made a lot of it, but working on this record, it was actually a really nice challenge to make an entire record without any electronics um, and just rely on humans, you know, playing instruments and singing. And it, it did sort of reawaken some very old parts of my brain regarding orchestration and arrangement and music theory, you know, things I hadn't really had to think about in a long time. And of course, being confronted with a lot of things I was incapable of doing. Like, I don't fully understand how to communicate with an orchestra. So I can write rudimentary score and arrangement, but of course I need an orchestrator and a conductor to translate that to an actual orchestra. No, amazing. I'd love to ask, with songs like Porcelain and Extreme Ways, it sounded like you were seeking to recreate these incredibly famous samples of yours using the orchestra um, and kind of tagging on to that question as well it's amazing with this extreme ways it's not the first time you've recreated this song so how was that because um, of course you've throughout the born films you've um been uh, you know revisiting the song so that must have been really interesting as well yeah i mean that's an odd song um and when i say it's odd what i mean is it's it was so accidentally autobiographical um i wrote it in 2001 really at sort of the height of my lunatic levels of fame etc and at that point i was so in love with fame and somehow i wrote this really sad song about fame and degeneracy leading to destruction and i i don't know I still don't know where that came from because at the time I didn't, I wasn't aware that fame and degeneracy were going to lead to destruction. I had, you know, I didn't want them to, and I was ignoring any evidence that that was going to be the case. So I'm still very self-involvedly fascinated with that song and how it came to be. Um, Cause it is so much more explicitly autobiographical than almost anything else I've ever written. Uh, And to that end, like the version that's on Reprise is so far from the original version. You know, I mean, and even the versions in the Bourne movies are very big and orchestral and driving. Mm -hmm. And I think with the one that's on Reprise, I wanted to sort of just strip it back and make it, you know, almost like a lamentation uh, to sort of identify, like to play up that, the sort of like, the despairing, austere core of the actual song. Yes, no, that's perfect. That's all, pretty much all my questions, so thank you guys. So, thank you so much. Oh, thanks. Yeah, so, uh, I wish we had more time. I apologize no. for for only having 20 oh, minutes. Oh, no worries. And from one vegan to another, I so appreciate everything you do in that regard, so thank you. Okay. Well, that's, that's 
that is my life's work. Like everything else I'm interested by, everything else is fun. But like, if I had to pick one thing to focus on, it would be working on behalf of <laughs> animal rights. No, wonderful. Oh, thank you guys so much. It's been amazing. Okay, thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. 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 Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.